Hello, and welcome to Biota. I'm your host, Phil Gibson. This episode is the second in a series about the animals, including humans, that survived the megafauna extinction at the end of the Pleistocene epoch. The end of the Pleistocene was a period of incredible ecological change. In a previous episode, we discussed those changes and the large mammals that went extinct at the end of the Ice Age. We also talked about the people who lived then and the tools they used to hunt large mammals. Human hunters and climate change were two important factors driving the megafauna extinction. Listening to that previous episode will help you understand the time period that this episode and following episodes are about. For these episodes, we're going to fast forward a couple of thousand years after the end of the Pleistocene to a time in the Holocene roughly 12,000 years ago. The temperature then is much warmer than during the Pleistocene. Many of the megafauna species have gone extinct, but a few had descendants that survived. These surviving species tended to be smaller than their ancestors, and their behaviors changed too. Take bison latifrons, for example. This extinct megafauna species was huge. They tended to live in small groups grazing and browsing in woodlands. Species that descended from them, such as the extinct bison antiquus, and the currently still living bison bison, are smaller. They also evolved to live in larger migrating herds that graze in the prairies. Their survival was due to their ability to evolve and change in response to their changing environment. Bison were essential to the survival of ancient people called the Folsom culture who lived in an area now known as the Oklahoma Panhandle. They developed a technique called an arroyo trap to hunt bison antiquus. That's when and where this episode starts, about 12,000 years ago in prehistoric Oklahoma. The Folsom people had learned how to hunt bison, but remember, this is before they had the bow and arrow. Spears were their primary tool for hunting large animals like bison. Horses had gone extinct and would not be reintroduced into North America for thousands of years. So how did they do it? How did they hunt these large animals? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. Plus, because of an incredible find at an archaeological dig in Oklahoma, we'll also learn something about the cultural side of ancient bison hunting, too. So, Settle in as we turn our attention to the story of a place called the Cooper Bison Kill Site and an artifact called the Cooper Bison Skull. For these episodes, I'm thrilled to have the scientist who literally uncovered the Cooper Bison Skull as a guest on this and following Biota episodes. I'll allow him to introduce himself, and I hope you enjoy the story he has to share with us. I am Dr. Leland B. Mantz. I am a research archaeologist at the Oklahoma Archaeological Survey at the University of Oklahoma. Well, the Cooper Bison Skull is a skull from a bison antiquus. It's 10,500 years old, and it has painted red zigzag lines on its forehead. And it was discovered in a bison kill site in northwest Oklahoma. The best place to start with Dr. Bement is to have him explain what an arroyo trap is and how it worked. Well, let's start out first with normally when you think of bison kill sites or buffalo kill sites, you envision uh, people stampeding animals over a cliff. In this case, 
This is the opposite. This is running animals or herding animals into a dead-end gully. So if you envision a very, very small box canyon, in this case it's a gully or we call it an arroyo, it has very steep walls and it has a very steep dead end on it. And when the animals come into this arroyo, they are being pushed up into it, not over its banks. And so they're herded into almost a corral situation where the animals get to that dead end and they cannot get out. And that means then that they're trapped in there. And for Native Americans that developed this technique, you, you have to have a certain number of animals involved with it so that when the lead animals get to the dead end and they realize that they're stuck and they turn around to leave, that there's too many animals followed them in behind, that that has blocked their path to escape. So they get to the dead end, they start to turn around. All of these animals that followed them in there are blocking the way out. And the animals just stop. They just stand there for a minute. And that is when the hunters that are positioned up on the rim pop up and start throwing spears. Now that we know what an arroyo trap is, let's next consider the people who used it at the Cooper site. On the southern plains, the initial culture that were making these traps were the Clovis people. They, after having hunted mammoths and figured out how to kill mammoths. When the mammoths went extinct, they had to divert their attentions to the next largest animal, which are these bison antiquas. And you hunt these bison in a different way, and one way is herding them into these traps. As, as we see with cultures, they change through time. And so Clovis uh, existed up until, oh, about 13,000 years ago, at which time they, that culture morphed into what we refer to as the Folsom culture. Folsom developed using a very thin, very small fluted projectile point that we call the Folsom point. And with that, it's, it seems to be more designed for hunting bison. It's a little bit smaller you don't, I mean, you can kill bison with a Clovis point, obviously, but in this instance, that the new culture that came in or that developed uh, preferred a different form of a projectile point. And then after, you know, Folsom was around for around 800 years, and then that culture again morphed into yet another one that we call the Plainview culture that continued to use a spear point that's kind of long leaf shaped that's no longer fluted so we see this this change through time and the ones that were at the cooper site were the Folsom people next i asked him to explain the events leading up to the hunt the evidence that we have from cooper and other Folsom age sites suggests that uh, it would have started out several days before the actual hunt by groups coming together at some predetermined location 
because it takes a fair number of people to pull off one of these kills. We estimate you have to have as many people as you have animals that you're killing. So at Cooper, if they're making a kill of somewhere between 30 and 60 animals, you need to have 30 to 60 able-bodied hunters to participate in it. To get that in a from these groups that are out there requires you to pull in more than just one family size band into a campground to have a large enough group of people to pull it off. So we figure that over the course of several days before you see various groups, probably three or four groups of at, that would contain at least 12 able-bodied participants in each group coming together at a predetermined location. Then they would have scouts out to figure out where the bison concentrations are in relationship to where the arroyos are that they need to get the animals into. And once they kind of have an idea of that, then they probably prep the arroyo a little bit, <clears throat> either cleaning out some debris or who knows, perhaps building a, a little barrier along the, an edge at the mouth of the arroyo to help divert the animals into it. So that takes a little bit of time. So that's probably what's going on for the first couple of days. Then when they decide to have the hunt, we the very first hunt that they do, we don't know what kind of additional preparation took place. But they, for the folks that were doing the painted bison skull, they already knew that this arroyo would work because there had already been used at least one time before, and that would have been evident by the skeletal remains of bison that had been previously killed would have still been partially seen in the in that arroyo most of it would have been buried but some parts would have still been sticking up so what happened was as part of that preparation probably either the evening before or it may have been done that particular morning as somebody went into that arroyo selected a bison skull that was already in that arroyo from a previous kill. The previous kill, we estimate, was probably somewhere five years before this particular event. That's based on uh, the weather stage of weathering of the bones, their sun bleached from that earlier kill. They selected a skull that was sun bleached. It was cleaned of all fat. There was no hide, no nothing on it. And they took that skull and they positioned it at the very back of the arroyo, at what we call the head cut or the very steep end of the arroyo. And they positioned it so it was looking down that gully in the direction of where the animals would have come into it. So when it was being positioned, then it was also painted using a red mineral pigment that they'd probably mixed up before, brought it in, and then painted it onto the skull, uh, probably with a yucca fiber brush 
and they painted zigzag lines is the main motif that's preserved on it. All of the motif is on the left side of the skull, and the right side is totally blank. But it may have had other paint on it that didn't preserve as well as the red uh, pigment did. So once it was painted, positioned at the very dead end part of the gully, then whatever ceremony happened after that, or that may have been all it was, uh, when that person or persons left, then started the hunt. And at that point, then you had hunters move in to be up on the rim of the gully, kind of hidden below the edge of the rim. And then you would have hunter pushers or beaters, however you want to look at it, is these would be people then that would work to maneuver this group of animals into that arroyo. And so they probably did, I mean, and that could have been with um, men and women and children that, that knew what they were supposed to do, how to be coordinated into slowly positioning themselves so that when animals came by them, they would kind of stand up and and either spook them a little bit or at least push them to where these animals uh, would head into the gully. Now, what's what's uh, really handy with bison behavior in this is that bison tend to follow a lead animal. In modern animals, modern bison, it's a older cow that tends to be the leader of the group. And she and then her, her daughters and their daughters form the basic herd structure. Um, for as they're migrating, they stay together in that group. And so as long as you can get that lead cow to head into the place that you want them to go, the others will follow her. And part of spooking that lead cow. Um, maybe that you know you spook her just enough to where she starts heading to what she would perceive as safety, which if she's along the river, in this case it would be along the Beaver River. If they're down in the floodplain, when you spook the animals, their tendency is to head to higher ground, and so they would select one of these gullies and follow into that gully, expecting it to lead them up onto higher ground. And so you get the lead cow to head into this particular gully and they start heading in. All of her following herd comes in behind her into that gully. And it's not until they've probably gone, oh, probably several hundred meters that they get to that dead end and go, uh-oh, now we're stuck. So that's how an arroyo trap works. Dr. Bement next gave a broader perspective on what was happening ecologically that led the Folsom people to start using this hunting technique. Well, this gives us a really interesting view uh, for that time period, because what we were talking about is at the very end of the Pleistocene, we see that uh, the environment is changing, the climate is changing. We're, we've just come out of 
the last glacial maximum, so the last ice age, where temperatures were, even though we're not close to a glacier by any stretch of the imagination, this part of the southern United States was still affected uh, by the very cold conditions of that last glacial maximum. But then following that, we move into a period where temperatures start warming up and we see uh, the grasslands start to develop. And with that, of course, we see the animals that are very much adapted to grasslands, first with mammoths, but then later on with bison uh, into this area. Those populations probably were increasing a little bit, although we don't know for sure uh, what's happening with their populations. But what we see then is this warming and with the expansion of grasslands and we start to get more and more bison into the area. And our first view of bison is that uh, bison are large animals that are fairly solitary. And this is uh, the view that we get from the last glacial maximum for during the cold period. But as things warm up, we see that the bison are actually getting a little bit smaller in size. And then ultimately, um, they get a different shape of their horns, which we start to interpret a little bit, or at least the paleontologists say that they are, are coming together into larger herds. And so, you know, the behavior of the animals as to what sort of herd behavior we're getting into is part of what's important with the studies that I've been doing is we've been trying to figure out ways to track these animals across the landscape. And so it's, uh, we're, we're looking at how the climate changes, how this changes herd structure and behavior, and then you put people into the mix and see how they develop a hunting technology to take advantage of all of this. It, it, it's fairly complex, but archaeology provides us with a way of trying to track these animals and track the people. With the people, it's easier because we can look at the, the projectile points and other tools that they make. Um, they use very particular stone types that they, their church, um, quartzites that have a very specific source area. And so through doing the sourcing of just the lithic materials coming from a site, we can tell where these people had been prior to the hunt. And so at the Cooper site, one of the main places that the Folsom people had been is down in central Texas utilizing chirts that come out of the Georgetown and Austin area. It's the only place that that particular chert outcrops. And they're making projectile points out of that material that we find at the kill site in northwest Oklahoma. So we know some of those people are coming from that direction. We also have points made out of Alabates chert that comes from the Amarillo area. And that would suggest then that we have people coming from that part of the Texas panhandle 
into where the kill takes place. And then we also have materials that are coming uh, out of northern Kansas and out of Colorado. So we have these four different areas represented just in the materials that are in the projectile points. So that shows you a big area that people are being drawn from to make these kills. Now with the bison, it gets a little bit trickier. We have to get into biology, into what can you use out of a bison that can be used to track where these animals have been and where, you know, just how they got to where they are. One of the fortunately best preserved aspects of bison tend to be their teeth. And we have developed very, very detailed growth and wear patterns on bison teeth to where we use that information to age the animals based on um, which teeth are erupting in the mouth and how much wear they have on them after they've erupted. So by looking at, even just looking at the mandibular teeth, we can look at which molars are in, which premolars are in, how far are they erupted, and then how much have they been worn down. And, and that's the way that we can tell you that this animal was three and a half years old at the time of its death, or two and a half years old, or five and a half years old. Now, that helps fine with setting up the structure of the herd, but we also want to know, okay, well, where did these guys come from? That brings us to the end of the first part of my interview with Dr. Bement. In the next episode, he will tell us how he and his colleagues used data collected at the Cooper Bison Kill Site to understand this convergence of bison and people. I'm Phil Gibson, and this has been Biota. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Leland Bement from the Oklahoma Archaeological Survey. From everyone at Biota, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.